band again, who's going to be bringing us the word of the Lord, Rick Matson. Come on. BCF is con uh, continuing its series in the book of James, and I was given the hardest chapter. Thank you, Pastor Jim. <laughs> the hardest chapter that uh, probably of all the chapters that would challenge me and my orientation to life and how I do things and um, I don't know, I guess it was the grace of God <laughs> uh, for this chapter to, to land in front of me here the last few weeks as I've been looking at it and thinking about it, kind of praying through it and uh, letting it shine a spotlight on my own life and then out of that, hopefully a spotlight on your life as well. At McAllister, we talk a lot about uh, privilege about fairness, about justice. Uh, this uh, kind of um, approach to life and, and this talk, it's, it, it's good for me. I'm not naturally oriented to those ideas, uh, privilege, fairness, and justice. And, and sometimes I have to admit I, I grow a little weary of it. Sometimes it's a bit of a cross-cultural experience for me to be at the college. I le tend to lean a little bit to the right uh, politically, and, and most of McAllister, maybe not everyone, but most of McAllister is more uh, leftist uh, politically. And, and then when you talk about privilege and fairness and racial justice, sometimes it uh, seems a little awkward to me at times. The, the college does charge students uh, $50,000 a year to be there and is very selective and is very privileged and it's uh, status as a college, not only in this state, but uh, in the country. So I feel that tension at times, but I love the place, you know? So I, I'm uncomfortable there at times, but I, but I love it. And I love the students, and I love my colleagues at the chapel that I, that I work with over there, the Jewish rabbi and the Catholic and the mainline person and the Buddhist. You know, there's a variety of people there. And so I have this... Uh, kind of a tension, this paradox at times when I'm there of really loving these people and loving this institution and then feeling uncomfortable with it and then feeling challenged by it at times. And then I wonder, well, do I feel challenged by it because it really has a prophetic role in my life or is it because I know better? And I honestly, I come from a little bit different tradition than all that and I believe in that tradition. So that tension uh, rises uh, to the surface uh, constantly. And, but I think McAllister, in many cases, gets it right. And I feel uh, convicted. It, it gets it right maybe in a way that dimly reflects the basic values of Scripture and particularly reflects the basic values of this passage we're going to deal with today, which we're going to read here in a moment, that being James chapter 2. So if you're kind of a privileged person like me, I think this passage is going to challenge you deeply. It's going to challenge you to the core. It's going to make you uncomfortable. But of course, that's what the Bible's supposed to do. If you're comfortable, it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. Okay? And if you're uncomfortable, the Bible is supposed to comfort you. Right? That's how it works. So if you're a privileged person like me, you're going to maybe feel uncomfortable today from what James has to say. And if you're 
more of a, a poor person, if you're not a privileged person, if you're a bit more of a marginalized person in our society, then I think this passage is going to be good news for you today. It's going to be a, 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 a word of encouragement to you today. So let's read the passage, uh, James 2, verses 1 through 13 says, my brothers and sisters, I'm reading the NIV, by the way. Okay, yeah. So a lot of you in your pew Bibles, page 854, was it he said? Okay. Uh, or your smartphones. I'm in the NIV. That's what I use at my church. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Continuing in verse, five, uh, verse 6, you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into the courts? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? That's kind of the first section. Then the second section, if you, verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. But whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And this last little section here, verses 12 and 13, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. Wow, I, I don't even really want to talk about this passage to tell you the truth, but you know, it's it's a calling, I guess. <laughs> so this first section here is kind of the, the poor versus the rich section. And the setting is a synagogue or a church, or sometimes synagogues uh, morphed into churches in the early centuries of the Christian movement. And in this setting here, the rich are shown favor at the church and the poor are dishonored. Well, let's talk about the poor a little bit. What is the Bible's view of uh, the poor? There's lots we could say, so I'm just going to give you a small sample. But I think the sample is actually representative of the larger teaching of the Bible. So in the Old Testament, you could go to many passages. One would be Deuteronomy 10. 18 to 19, you don't, you don't need to turn there. You can if you want to, but I'm going to read it fairly quickly. Deuteronomy 10, 18 to 19 says, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. The Old Testament, the law of God, always makes provision for the widows, the orphans, and the aliens, the, the foreigners among you. You might call them the, 
the immigrants, the internationals among you, always makes provision for them. Because they're now a part of Israel, and they don't have the, the clan, the tribe, the family in Israel that the clans, families, and tribes of Israel enjoy, where there's security and provision. So who's going to provide for them? We are. It's the law of God for God's people to provide for those who are in need. So it's a very patriarchal society. So if a woman becomes a widow, who provides for her? Her husband? No, he's gone. Now the community provides for her. If a child's parents are killed or lost somehow, who provides for the child? We do. The community does. That was always the case in the Old Testament. New Testament, same thing. You have lots of verses about caring for orphans and widows. And in Luke chapter 6, which is the passage about the Beatitudes, it says, uh, looking at his disciples, Jesus, looking at his disciples now, says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So there's a special place in the kingdom of God for those who, who are not wealthy, for those who are of humble means, who, who are of meager uh, possessions. God smiles upon them in some way. So one of the paradoxes that I kind of tripped over in this passage is that we're not supposed to play favorites, but actually God sort of does. See, I mean, that's kind of one of the tough truths about this passage, is that he sort of does play favorites. Now, in a larger theological sense, we're going to see a verse here in a moment that says, he shows no partiality. But here in James, of course, James. James is always a little bit the radical, right, in the New Testament. Always adds something to the New Testament that quite a few of the other books don't add. And you kind of got to stretch your theological arms a bit to fit James into this whole thing. That's what Martin Luther had to do in the Reformation. Well, we have to do the same thing. We have to go through those same struggles. And here, the poor are specially favored by God. We see it, teaching of Jesus in Luke 6. And here as well. We're not supposed to dishonor the poor, for they are favored in the sight of God. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more in a second. But then we contrast that here with the rich in the passage. And it says, let's see, that uh, if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, verse 3 now, and here's a seat to stand here, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges. And so James asked, why do you defer to the rich? They're the ones who are exploiting you. They're the ones who are oppressing you here in first century Palestinian Jewish Christian institutions. So the historic background here uh, in the first century, the rich are oppressing the poor. Okay, that's not a new topic in the Bible or in history. And what they're doing is they're dragging poor people into the courts. And since the wealthy have power and they have privilege and they have resources, and they have lawyers, whatever that might look back in the day, uh, they're able to extract funds, extract money, extract service from these poor people. Well, here's where the church was able to step in and do something about this injustice maybe step in and put a stop to it, because some of these courts of law actually take place in the synagogues and churches. So poor Christians 
are being tried in their own churches and exploited by wealthy people. And so the church's response quite often, instead of putting a stop to this injustice, they would defer to the wealthy people because they fear that they too will be dragged into court. You see how that works? First, the wealthy and the powerful bring people into these courts of law. And then instead of standing up to this injustice, the church <laughs> bows and apologizes and backs away and honors, unjustly so, the rich people. And that's what James is writing. He goes, stop that. Stop that. You know, most of the New Testament is actually <laughs> fairly hard on people with wealth. And, you know, in this country, I'm on a minister's salary, so I like to think of myself as one of the poor. But in fact, I have a lot of money. And that's partly because uh, Sharon and I save and are wise with our money, so that's part of it. And that part I don't apologize for at all. But another part of it is that I happen to live in America, and I happen to live in middle America, and one of the places in middle America with the best economies, that being the Twin Cities, and I've got a nice house. And I mean, relative to the rest of the world, I'm like palatial. I, I live in a mansion, and I have tons of money at my disposal. So I read through the New Testament. My temptation is always to say, well, I'm in the ministry. I, this doesn't apply to me. I only make so much compared to all my pals at the golf course that make a lot more than me. Yeah, but what about the 98% of the rest of the world that's beneath me economically? Matthew 19, 23 to 24, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I, say to, I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's a representative passage of lots of other passages that are pretty hard on people of wealth. And if I allow myself to be put kind of in the gun sights of this passage and others, it's an uncomfortable feeling, I've got to tell you. And a lot of you are maybe about the same level as, as me, and, uh, and, and some of you are, are quite a bit ahead of me, and it, that should make us all uncomfortable. Well, I hang out with people that have a lot more money than I do. When you get into development and fundraising for a living, and that's part of my job, you end up hanging out with a lot of wealthy people. And they take me to their cabins and their homes and their homes in the south and golf courses and restaurants and, and we hang out and we enjoy it. And I, I love those folks. And they enable me, just like you do, they enable me to spread the word of God on college campuses. And they have so many wonderful qualities. And But I think in their honest moments, um, they'll tell you that, yeah, wealth can be a distraction. It can deter a bit from your relationship with God because one of the things that we find in our relationship with God that's so valuable and so important is security. But if you actually don't need that security, if you've got security built up elsewhere and you don't need the security that's found in the Lord and, and the security that you have in your bank account and your resources, it can detract you. It can be a detour. It can be a distraction. And then if you live in America, we have all this theology of, blessing, right? We're just thankful for the blessings that we've been given. And on one level, that's fine. You ought to be thankful for the things that you have. But 
when it goes too far, where all really that you can see is this spirituality or this theology, this biblical teaching about blessing, that's your life. And even that, I would say, is a little bit too easy. <laughs> it's a little bit too comfortable. It excuses oneself from falling under the teaching of these passages. Now, is money as a thing in itself bad? Well, no. Money isn't bad. It's, it's fine. The scripture says it's the love of money. It's where we get in trouble. And the love of money here in first century Palestine is what these usuries, these people who were exercising unfair power, this dominance of wealth, they were using it to oppress and exploit other people. Now, it's a pretty obvious case in the text. I mean, for us who have wealth, maybe it's a little less obvious at times. So I think if you are a person of means, however you define that, the calling here is to be really careful with your your wealth and to not let it distract you. I mean, you know what the calling is here? Let me put it more succinctly. The calling, if you're rich, is to become poor. To adopt the attitude of humility and thankfulness and sacrifice that comes a lot easier to poor people than it does to wealthy people. Now, you could probably talk the other side of the equation. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you're not greedy, right? I mean, poor people got their issues as well, and the, the scripture speaks to that. But here, the inequality and the injustice of these churches really comes out in the text. And if we listen to the rest of the New Testament, it's those of us who have wealth that need to say, wow, I need to seek to become poor. In other words, I need to seek to not be distracted by my wealth, and I need to build up treasures that are actually in heaven rather than building my estate here. One of my friends who just has tons of money said to me a couple years ago, I need to declutter. <laughs> I need to simplify. I need to sell off. And he did. It took him two years. He sold off a whole bunch of his holdings. Gave a huge gift to his church and put it into their building program. And he is a generous guy and gives me a lot of resources to do my ministry. And, and then we play golf, and he still enjoys some blessings and so forth. But I'll never forget when he, he, when he said that to me. I'll just, I'm really paranoid about names, but I'll just call him Dave. That's not his real name. Okay, Dave just said, Rick, I need to simplify. I need to unclutter. This is, this is crazy, but I'm doing it. And, and, and then he did. Well, then he gave a chunk of it to me, too. That wasn't too bad. Well, now I'm the steward. Now what do I do with that? It goes to InterVarsity and that pays my salary and do I, am I a good steward of that? So the wealth is passed around in the kingdom and then it becomes the next person's responsibility. And that's what's going on here in this text. And so James is saying, okay, church, get better at this. You've got the poor people coming into this sanctuary and then you've got the wealthy people coming into the sanctuary. Why do you kowtow? Why do you defer? Why do you honor the wealthy people and ignore those who are poor? That's an injustice in the sight of God. And look back at verse 1 
that as brothers and sisters, believe, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. So point one, <laughs> don't play favorites. Point one, James 1, uh, verses 1 to 13, don't play favorites. Church, don't play favorites. Well, I think there's broader implications here, not just rich and poor. Probably the broader implications if we read the rest of the New Testament, and I think James here is assuming the other teaching of the Gospels and parts of the New Testament. Don't play favorites of any kind. Okay? It's not just rich and poor here. That's the example that he uses to illustrate his broader principle of don't show favoritism. But I think we can tease out some of the implications of that. Don't play favorites of any kind. And here's one reason, because God doesn't. Now, in, there's one certain spiritual sense in which God favors the poor, but overall, God is not a God who shows partiality to any individuals. Right? Deuteronomy 10.17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. <laughs> so any faithful person, any loving person can come to the Lord. And it doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. None of those things matter. If you are a faithful, loving person, then you are welcome in his presence. Uh, maybe given the gift of life if that connection is made with him. So he is not a God who shows partiality, and therefore we don't. We are the one who represent God. Don't show favoritism, it says in verse 1, as I just mentioned. And then 1 Peter 1.16, a fairly famous verse, Be holy because I am holy. So you might think, well, why is it that Christians should do all these things? And James is an author. He's an apostle who calls us to do lots of stuff. It's, a it's, a, it's an epistle about works, about living out your faith in the practical real world. And why do we do that? just so that we can check things off from our to-do list? No, not really. Why do we do that? Because the interior faith, which is in the heart, expresses itself and extends itself to the external world. So it goes from in to out. We'll see that at the end of the passage here in a second. But why do we do that? It's because be holy, because I am holy. So we have a source. We have someone to emulate. We have a God who calls us to be his representatives, to be his image bearers, to be his mirrors in the culture in which we live. So that's the source, not just another to-do list. So if you think of yourself as a super practical person, well, what's the motivation behind your practicality? In the text here, the motivation is to be a representative of God. Be holy, for I am holy. Be impartial, because I am impartial. Well, now let me really meddle with your lives, like this text has meddled with me. I'm just trying to pass on the favor here, okay? <laughs> and I'd like to go through a little checklist. So if you have a pen and paper, I'd, I would actually, I'd like you to take it out. And uh, probably don't write in the pew Bibles. That's not a good thing. But if you have pen and paper, or you can do the mental checklist, 
or uh, if you're really tech savvy, you know the smartphone can work for these things. And here's your checklist. This is a, kind of the first application, major application from the passage, and that is when you walk into a situation, how is it that you show partiality? How is it that you tend to show favoritism? I know we all do it here. I'm assuming everyone is guilty of this at some level, at some degree. So let's start with wealth. Are you attracted to people who are well-dressed and well-mannered and smell good? And if there's that person in the room as you walk in and then a person of lowly state, which one do you tend to talk to first? Which one are you drawn to? Which one do you feel safest with? Secondly, how about appearance? If there's an attractive person in the room and a person that you don't find very attractive, uh, which one do you go talk to? Which one are you hoping to make a connection with? Let me get even tougher here. Women, just close your ears right now. <laughs> okay, guys. There's a cute female in the room, and there's one that you don't find that attractive. Which one are you hoping to make a connection? How is that in the sight of the Lord? And then do we subtly send the message to our female friends and relatives that that's how they, that's how they gain our attention? and they gain our acceptance? And does that kind of put pressure on them to look and behave a certain way? And then, but no one talks about this, except maybe the ladies talk about it in secret, like, wow, I just can't live up to this. And you know, all sorts of things are brought into this equation. And that, that's why this passage just makes me feel really uncomfortable. And, and I hope I'm passing some of the blessing on to you as well right now, okay? And it works for the, the women, too. You know, Which of the guys are you hoping will really notice you and talk to you and befriend you? And who do you like to be seen with? That's partiality. Uh, what about gender? Are you more likely to talk to a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, when you walk into a room? Whether you're male or female, I don't think matters in this question. What about ethnicity? Are you more likely to talk to someone of yours or a similar ethnicity than you are to someone who's different than you? And just to hang out there and make friends there and show trust and show deference and honor someone who's like you or someone who's different than you. And our culture's got a built-in excuse for this. Our culture says, well, like hangs with like. We enjoy people who are like ourselves. And our culture is totally fine with that, except the Bible isn't totally fine with that. Bethel Christian Fellowship, a house of prayer for... Yeah, okay. So a house of folks, a community that prays together and plays together and then talks together and then trusts one another and then hangs out together. And pretty soon some of those natural barriers that we all grew up with, or most of us grew up with, 
those things start to come down. And then we become a prophetic community to the wider community that knows nothing of these things. Or to McAllister College that talks about diversity and to some extent has it and talks about those barriers coming down and to some extent has it, but doesn't have the fullness of that. The fullness of that is found where? In Christ. It's in the church. Or it should be in the church. So we become a prophetic representative of the law of God, as seen here in James, to our culture, to our society. What about people who have talent? Are you drawn to people who are super talented? Or are you drawn to those who either don't have that naturally gifted genius or don't show it, perhaps? I know which is true for me. You know, I just have to admit uh, from this passage, and I really, this is painful for me to admit. I, just, I hate to admit this, but I'm afraid it's true that I'm, I'm drawn to wealth, to appearance, to gender, depending on the situation, to uh, white people, uh, to talented people, to people roughly my age and, and younger, to able-bodied people rather than disabled people. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And what was that one? Yeah, education. I'm drawn to educated people less than to people who aren't educated. I just, I just hate to admit that to you. And, you know, over the years, these things improve in our lives, and we maybe make some progress, but wow, I just feel like I'm scratching the surface here, and I have a long way to go. And, and, I, and my question to you, church, are you with me on the journey at least? Okay, We're not asking for perfection here. We're asking, are you with me on the journey? That's what I'm inviting you into because James is inviting you into that. I guess I'm supposed to be James's spokesman today. <laughs> not a fun role. And I like talking in front of people, but not from this passage, you know? <laughs> Become like Zacchaeus, who said, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. That's, that's what's happening. Uh, I, I, sh I should just go home now, but uh, there's more. You know, there's more fun in this passage. <laughs> and verses 8 to 13, if, if kind of the first point of this is don't play favorites, then verses 8 through 13 is keep the law. Okay, don't play favorites. Now he's saying keep the law. And favoritism is embedded here a little bit as well. Let's just polish off the rest of this passage. Um, so if you really, verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, and then he says what that is, uh, you're doing right, but if you show favoritism, then you are sin and convicted by the law. Well, what is this royal law? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? It, it, it kind of has its roots in the Old Testament, right, in the Hebrew Bible. And sometimes it's called the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. A lot of people think that's just found in the New Testament. Actually, that is found in the Old Testament. Jesus extends it, however, Mark 12 and a couple other places in the Gospels. Mark 12, 30 to 31, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, he adds that, and with all your strength. And then Jesus goes on to say, the second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than 
these. So why is it called the royal law? Because it's given by the king. The king is the one who issues the royal law. And it's the king of Israel in the Old Testament. Now this is during the time, Deuteronomy, it's during the time of Moses, before Israel had a human king. They only had God as their king. And so God, their king, issues this, this edict, this law, you might say, this way to kind of summarize the rest of the law. And then in the New Testament, the king, the King Jesus, repeats it. He takes it from the Old Testament, and he, he repeats it, and he expands it slightly. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And the idea here is that really the whole law is summed up, in a sense, in this royal law. So what is the law about? It's about this royal law. It's to love God and to love your neighbor. That's a summation of the law. Jesus catches up. He calls into himself the entire Old Testament teaching, and then he embodies it, and then he expands it. That's the royal law. And the text says if you keep the royal law, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you are sinning and you are convicted. Well, then verse 12 says that we ought to expect to be judged by this law. And the law, it condemns, but it also gives freedom. So let's just unpack this for a second. The Old Testament law, which is kind of summed up, in this royal law. It's, the law is an instrument of, of condemnation on the one hand, because it tells us our sin. But here the text says it's also a place of liberty. Look at this. It says, uh, let's see if I can find it now. Uh, mm -hmm. Verse 12. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, freedom. I was looking at the word liberty. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Well, how can something that condemns also give freedom? Don't we think normally of the Old Testament law as being something that just points out our sin and something that, yeah, and I know I can't live up to it because there's 614 of these laws and I'm never going to obey them all. Even if I were an ancient Jew, I wouldn't obey them all. And so... It just points out my need for Christ. Okay, that's the usual way we think about this. And that's fine. But there's another piece here. It's the law of freedom. And I think what James is getting at is if you live out the royal law, if you are in love with God, and if that love extends to people, even if it's imperfectly done, okay, we're on the journey, right? Even if it's imperfect, what you will end up finding, much to your surprise, is that when you get there and you do these things, there's actually freedom and liberty in obedience. And that's exactly opposite of what our culture teaches. Our culture teaches that there's freedom, that there's liberty in doing whatever you want, whenever you want. That's the definition of freedom. And the scripture goes, oop, not really. Upside down kingdom. The kingdom puts it the other way. The kingdom says there's actually freedom in loving God and loving people, which means what you're really doing is obeying the law. You're obeying those 614 commands in the Old Testament, which are now caught up in Christ and your faith in Christ, and you're living out of that faith in Christ in practical ways 
is steps of obedience that brings freedom and joy into your life. That's the cool part of this. Like I finally found some hope in this passage for myself. You know, this is bad news for a long time. No freedom. I'll take that. And notice it kind of crescendos into freedom. Freedom comes toward the end of the passage. Don't show partiality. Live up to the royal law, and you will find liberty. You will find freedom in doing what is right. And I don't know about you, but when I feel like I'm doing the wrong thing, and my culture tells me, oh, you're really free right now, Rich. I don't really feel that free. I feel free when I stop it. And when I turn around and repent and do the right thing, that's when I feel freedom. And I think that's what uh, James is getting at here. So how do you keep the law? You keep the law by having faith in Jesus and living that out. It starts in here and it goes out to there. Let us not see the book of James as merely a book of external checklists that we're supposed to walk through. I'd like to close this time with two things. One is I want to tell you a story of a poor person who's been oppressed, who's a friend of mine, and, but then how hope came into his life. And, and then I want to invite you to respond to this text, and uh, Pastor Jim's going to help me uh, with this uh, response here in, in a few minutes. And I'm just going to let you go back to that checklist that I mentioned a little while ago, that uncomfortable checklist. And we're going to have you think through that a little bit here uh, at the altar. But my, my friend, uh, I'm, you know, well, I'm really careful with uh, anonymity when I talk about situations. You read my book, and it's all been changed, the names and places and so forth. So I'll just call this guy. He's a, he, I'll just call him the servant because he's a servant, and he's, a, he's, he's poor. And uh, he was a, he, he helped out an elderly gentleman uh, whose family had abandoned him. This man's in a wheelchair and entering a nursing home. And so uh, no one was helping him. So uh, the servant went and helped this, this man. And in order to take care of him, he had to make withdrawals from an ATM, from a, a cash machine. And the family who had abandoned their, uh, this older relative started to get suspicious and started to think that the servant was stealing the money because he had all these withdrawals from the ATM. Well, the servant then was uh, accused of this crime of embezzling this money, and the family brought him to the courts, and the, the courts uh, uh, appointed a public defender for him because he couldn't afford one himself. Well, the public defender never called, never called, never called. He could never get a hold of him. And these public defenders, of course, they're quite busy in our society because lots of people can't afford their own attorney. So he got the day of court. His attorney still had not called him. And he's been accused of a fairly significant crime, and it's in the papers. Right? His friend's name is in the papers. The it wasn't called the servant, believe me. Well, he gets there, and an hour before his trial, uh, a different defender was appointed to him. And we didn't know what happened to the first one. He was out of town or something. And the new defender didn't know really any of the specifics of the situation. So um, she recommended to the servant that he plead guilty to this crime because if he didn't and he lost, 
and he might get three, four, five years in prison. If he pleaded guilty, he'd probably only get three months. Oh, yeah, there's one thing I forgot to tell you about all this. This man is, uh, servant is uh, African-American, 33 years old. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> In our society, that's often a person who's not given a fair chance, is not given the same honor and deference that other people are given. And so the servant went before the court, and even though he had done nothing, and he knew that in his heart, he pled guilty, and the judge screamed him out. Angry judge. And the servant is in the ministry. That was even worse. The judge called him a hypocrite and everything. And then the family was able to speak against him. And he just stood there and took it. Next thing you know, the servant is in jail. He's in prison. And the white prison guards would take him. I'm probably going to start crying at this point because it's just so sad. They would take him into the bathrooms, and then they would mess the bathrooms and put him on the floor, give him a toothbrush, and they would make him scrub the bathrooms after they had soiled the bathrooms. That's what the white prison guards had done to the servant. And he was on his knees, hands and knees, doing that. He was in there for crime he didn't commit, and he and I were doing Bible study at the time. How is that? By mail. Okay. I would study the passage and send it to him, and he'd study the passage, and he would send it to me, and then we'd read each other's passages that we uh, did Bible study on. And <clears throat> so one of the passages I sent him was the story of Joseph, who uh, had chased after Potiphar's wife. So the man had thought that Joseph was innocent all the way, and he was imprisoned. And, and the servant told me recently that that passage really meant a lot to him, that Joseph had endured suffering at the hands of oppressors, and the servant had done the same. Well, after, I think, uh, three months serving in prison, the servant was released. And when he came out, uh, he immediately wanted to get back into the ministry. And those of us who knew him well gathered around him and said, now, you need a, a period of waiting. And and he was a little disoriented. He'll tell you later, he was disoriented for several months. And the servant then was um, somehow favored in the eyes of God. And, and here's what I mean by that. After suffering oppression at the hands of the criminal justice system in this country and this white family that had taken him down, uh, after six, eight months, maybe 10 months or so, uh, we began to see God's favor appearing in his life. His uh, orientation back to his responsibilities and his schedule and his God was being put back in place. A smile was back on his face. Uh, he's a musician and he was being invited to play in churches and to speak in churches. And it gradually came back to him that God was restoring the ministry that he had originally had. And now he just started a church in the North Metro. And people are coming to this church to hear the word of God. And people are giving tithes and gifts so that the servant can proclaim the word of God and bring people into the kingdom. And I have a busy schedule and a busy life, so me trying to make progress in this difficult difficulty that I find myself in of always showing partiality, me trying to make a little progress, I've decided that 
you know, I'm a busy guy. I could be putting my time and effort into lots of people, college students and so forth. I, he asked me to be his mentor, and I, I said yes. And, I, and I'm feeling, uh, I don't say that to brag. <laughs> Sheesh, it's just scratching the surface here. But I say that um, to encourage you to say yes to something. Because when you say yes to something that's hard or when you're prejudiced against it like I am, then there's freedom in that. So now when the servant and I hang out, we do Bible study together, and we do strategy about his church, and, and, and I mentor him, and I receive a lot from this too. I feel like I'm living the law of freedom in Christ. There's freedom in that as I put time into the servant. And I'd like to invite uh, Pastor Jim uh, up and, and to just do this last part with me. It says, uh, mercy triumphs over judgment in the last verse. Look at that. Uh, mercy triumphs over judgment. So instead of us being judging people, showing partiality, showing favoritism, folks, are we going to be people of mercy? Are the walls going to come down? And what I would like you to do now, and yeah, do we have a little music or something? Yeah. Thank you. My pal James, I've known James forever. What I'd like you to do is go back to that checklist. Remember that checklist about wealth, about ethnicity, about talent, um, about age, about gender? I'd like you to think through those things once again with me. And I'd like to challenge you by saying, if you want to live out the whole law, which is summed up in Christ, and if Christ is in your heart, and if Christ in your heart is going to be expressed in the external world, then you need to work through that checklist. Okay? That checklist of favoritism. That checklist of partiality. That checklist that I've been pretty uncomfortable with here the last uh, few weeks as I've been plowing through this passage or getting plowed over by it or something. And so uh, we'd like to invite you as you need to make Adjustments. Maybe just pick one or two of those categories where you need to make an adjustment. And then we're going to invite you to come to the altar or stay where you are. Or you're kind of in charge of the uh, protocol with that. And to think through these issues. Yeah, the law of Christ within me. I need to make an adjustment. Maybe mm. one or more of these categories. We're going to invite you now to do this. My friends. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. Can we just open our hearts right now? Jesus, um, you are the spirit of prophecy. You have spoken to us prophetically this morning. Spirit of the living God, come. We welcome you to do the transformational work that only you are able to do. If we tried to do this ourselves, in our own mind, in our own strength, in our own ability, we would utterly fail. Because, Lord, we know that because we have. <laughs> but, God, you're so gracious and so good. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mm -hmm. You are greater than our hearts when our hearts condemn us. You're greater. And you are able. So we welcome you now. Lord, even as we close this time together, for this word to go deep into our soul and to find good soil and to spring up 
and bring transformation to our lives and to the heart and life of this church. Lord, in many ways, this passage lies at the heart of our calling mm -hmm. as a house. We need you. We depend on you. We come back to you this whole service. So right now, we're going to respond by singing a simple song that speaks to the very thing. And I can't remember who it was that said, maybe Rick knows or somebody knows, that um, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. The cross is the great leveling place. And this song says we all bow down. And... Um, I learned this from my African friends. The only time, the only posture that we have when our head is below our hearts is this. And you may or may not be able to physically do that this morning from where you are or even at the altar. You might not have the physical capacity to do that. But in your heart right now, we're going to sing this song as we close. And this will be the close of the service. But if you'd like to come to the altar and kneel, or where you are, if you'd like to kneel, I'm going to ask you to stay just till we sing this through. And then I know we've got a, a lunch at our home where we're inviting you to join us and lots of things going in your life. But can we sing this together? And just allow the words just kind of wash through your spirit right now and the altar is open if you want to come the Lord has spoken to you in a way that you feel like you need to take that step come step out right now we all bow down and we all bow down and now I pray that you might be filled afresh this day with that love the immeasurable love of God the Father with the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, with the inexhaustible strength and power, comfort and hope of the Holy Spirit, be with you and yours as you go from this house today, sent to make disciples of all nations. Go with the banner of his favor over your lives and until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I pray that his love and goodness and mercy would chase you down each and every day of your life for his glory. I bless you in Jesus' name.